Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. He was a little guy. He had a drug problem. His parents drug him to church every Sunday. He had to get dressed up. That's how that church worked. He had to endure Sunday school lady, flannel graph, got in trouble a couple times for kicking the seat in front of him, bugging the child in front of him. But that child was just a tatty tattletale, and that kid also had a drug problem. In fact, there was not a single kid there without a drug problem. They were all forced to be there. It's not like anybody woke up on Sunday morning going, yay, church, at that age. Quite frankly, I'm pretty sure nobody in the whole church woke up thinking, yay, church, on Sunday mornings in the church. Just something we did, something we had to endure, something that was just part of I guess who we were for some odd reason. And sometimes I remember as I was having to dress up in my Sunday best, and you can see I quit that, um, or maybe this is my Sunday best. (laughs) I remember being frustrated. I remember asking my mother, why? I remember harassing my brother and sister on the 30-minute drive to our church as we passed lots of other perfectly good churches to get to the one that we went to. And again, I asked, why? And then we started playing slug bug. Every VW bug that you passed, you had to hit your brother or sister. And of course, after going on this route every Sunday morning, every Sunday night, and every Wednesday night from before I can remember until sixth grade, we had it memorized. We memorized where every single VW bug was, and everybody could anticipate the hit, the complaining, the cheating. But I'm pretty sure all five of us in the car wondered, why? Why do we do this? My dad, a good accountant, who I'm sure was tabulating the miles per gallon (laughs) and the cost to go from home to church six times a week. I wonder if he ever wondered why. Why do we go to this church? Now, the answers were clear. We inherited the church. That's where Grandpa and Grandma Steiger were. That's where my parents were married. Uh, That's just the church that we always went to. We inherited it. We didn't even think about going anywhere else. And besides, we were Assembly of God. We were the only Christians in the whole town. Except for the other Assembly of Gods, but we didn't like their churches because my grandparents weren't there and my Uncle Don wasn't on staff. So we drove the 30 minutes to this church. And every Sunday night, as the Broncos game was culminating 
And we had to start the trek and many Bronco games we finished listening on the radio. Those days especially, I said, why? <laughs> and the times where the Broncos weren't playing and the wonderful world of Disney would start and they didn't have a radio program and they would begin and you'd see the beautiful cursive of Disney's name begin to be spelled by Tinkerbell and then you'd see the castle and you would just scream out as a child to your parents, why? You ever felt that? Some of you felt that this morning. Why? That's why I named the series we're going to be in called Church. Why bother? Because it's a question I have wrestled with nearly my entire life. You mean you don't have that one sorted out? No. (laughs) I don't have it completely sorted out. There are plenty of Sundays, excuse me, Saturday nights before I go to bed. And I wonder, why bother? Why bother? Why do we do this thing? What's the point? What's the purpose? Now, some of you have been coming to this church since before you can remember. And you maybe maybe haven't given it much thought why you go to this church as opposed to the Methodist church or the Nazarene church or the Lutheran church or the Catholic church. Or new life. Some of you go to this church because you inherited it. It's thrust upon you. You had a drug problem. Some of you have drug problems. And you come to this church because you need help. You need a fellowship. You need people to gather around you and help you walk the difficult path of sobriety. Some of you just come... To be seen. It's good for business. It's good for reputation. It's just where you're supposed to be. Some of you come because you like it. That's a good thing. Hopefully, many of us like it. But why? Why are we here? Why do we come? Why bother? In fact, in recent years, because many people take summers off from church because they're busy and there's so many things going on in our lives, they've started up a new marketing campaign and they call it Back to Church Sunday. And we didn't participate because it's a little irritating to me. Marketing is not my favorite thing sometimes. And we didn't participate in that. And one of the things that I wonder that they probably need to address is back to church Sunday. Well, why bother? Why bother with the whole thing? Why bother having church? For the next few weeks, we're going to wrestle with this question. We're going to specifically try to drill down into why this church? Because you have choice. In fact, you might think our competition Is the Nazarene church or the Lutheran church or the Catholic church or new life. You might think that that's our competition. Let me tell you, our competition is anything and everything you could possibly be doing from 930 to 11 o'clock. 
anything and everything you could possibly be doing from 9.30 to 11 o'clock is the church's competition. But if we define and see church as only happening from 9.30 to 11 o'clock, do we understand church? Do we have a good handle on church? Do we understand what we're trying to achieve? Are we trying to be who we're supposed to be? There's a quote by Phil Yancey. And Yancey is an author. He said this, Once we have a vision of the church, as participants, we can help it become the kind of place God intended. There's several things I like about that quote. One is that he ends by saying, The place that God intended. Whose idea was this church thing anyways? Pope? A bishop? Me? God forbid? You? Whose idea was this? You see, you can go to the New Testament and you can find the first use of the word church and you will see that it was Jesus' idea. And if you've been in church world for any amount of time, you know that the church teaches, and not just the church, the scriptures, Jesus himself teaches that he is God. In the flesh. And Jesus, this is his idea. The church. And I like how Phil says, if we get a vision of what the church is supposed to be according to God, then we can participate in creating that. And that makes me start going, huh, church, why bother? That sounds, that sounds fun. That's got some potential at least that I might be a participate, a participate in something. I, I, I'm a professional communicator. A participant in something that God is seeking to do. You see, when I was a kid with my drug problem, I never heard it that way. I never understood that going to church, it was something that we were doing because we were trying to participate in something that God was doing. Let me suggest that many of you don't, have that view of church. Why? Because I don't always have that view of church. It's easy for us to get our own agendas and our own ideas and throw those in to the pot and see just what boils up. It's really easy for Christians to have their plans and want to do what they want to do and just say, bless it, Lord. In a few weeks, we'll talk a little bit about how does God lead his church and what does that look like? But I like this quote from Yancey. If we get an idea, a vision of what it is God wants to do, we can be participants in it. So at its core, what is God trying to do in the church? What is he trying to do? Well, I thought that we would answer this question by going to Leviticus chapter 1. Because that's such a wonderful place to start. And if that's lost on you, that's okay. You'll see in a moment. Leviticus chapter 1. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. It's towards the beginning of the Bible. It's that book that if you've ever tried to read through the Bible in a year, it's the one that you go, oh man. Again, I'm going to fail miserably. In fact, if you don't fail, you probably just skim this stuff. If you don't fail, maybe you just skipped this stuff and went on to the next interesting piece of the scriptures. 
And the reason I want to, there, there's a specific reason I want to start in Leviticus. And hopefully you'll be able to track with me and we'll all arrive at the same place. Now, let me just read it to you. The Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting. Now, we've got to define a few things. The tent of meeting is a place where people met. It was a tent-like structure. See how I'm doing there? It was a tabernacle. And Moses would meet with God there. He said, speak to the Israelites and say to them, when you bring an offering to the Lord, bring as your offering an animal from either the herd or the flock. So the herd is cattle, the flock is sheep and goats. Do we still use those terms? Okay, so we're tracking. We know what they're talking about. If the offering is a burnt offering from the herd, now this is not steak, just in case you're wondering, you are to offer a male without defect. You must present it at the entrance to the tent of meeting so that you may be acceptable to the Lord. You are to lay your hand on the head of the burnt offering and it will be accepted on your behalf to make atonement for you. Now, we got to stop here because they start to get some strange things going on. And I want to suggest to you that you read this as a Christian. And that makes sense because many of you are. And if you're not a Christian, you probably are still reading it through churchy language. And many of you have probably never heard a sermon on Leviticus, any of the chapters. And some of you might be thinking, all right, something kind of crazy, magical is going on when they place their hand on the, on the bull or the goat's head. And that's not at all what's going on. That's not what the Israelite is thinking. You see, they would keep herds and flocks. And when they bring one to the tent of meeting and they place their hand on it, they're just saying, this is the one. That's what they're saying. You see, many of us load this up because we, were, we read the word atonement. And if we've spent any time in church world, we instantly go, oh, this has to do with sin and guilt. The trouble with that thinking is this word atonement is used all over the place in the Old Testament. We'll look at that in a moment, but it's the Hebrew word kafar. And it's a word that is a hononym. Do you know what a hononym is? The word trunk is an English homonym. Trunk can mean the trunk of a car. It can mean grandma's old trunk that's up in the attic. It can mean the trunk of a tree. It can mean this part of your body, the trunk. There's all sorts of things that trunk could mean. And the way you understand the way it's used is the context. The context tells you the definition of this word. We have many of these in English language. And Hebrew has these too. And the only way to know how it's being used is to read the context. Now, in this context, there is no mention of sin. There is no mention of guilt. There is no mention of shame. And if we keep reading, which we will, one of the things we need to figure out is what's going on? How is the blood of the sacrifice being used? 
So it says, on your behalf to make atonement for you, you are to slaughter the young bull before the Lord. And then Aaron's sons, the priests, shall bring the blood and splash it against the sides of the altar at the entrance to the tent of meeting. Where's the blood being applied? The altar. It's not being applied to the offerer. In fact, there's not a single time in the book of Leviticus that the blood is applied to the person offering it. It's applied to the priest, and it's applied to the altar. It's also applied to other things within the tabernacle, but never to the person offering the sacrifice. Now, if you know much about Christian theology or even Christian hymnody, you know that we sing songs about the blood of Christ. You know that at communion, we think about the blood of Jesus. We think about this blood of Christ being applied to us, to sinners. But we need to be careful how we think about the sacrifices in Leviticus because none of these sacrifices, the blood is being applied to the one making the offering. It's never being applied to them. Now you're thinking, how, what does this have to do with church? Let's keep reading. <clears throat> You are to skin the burnt offering and cut it into pieces. The sons of Aaron, the priests, are to put fire on the altar and arrange wood on the fire. Then Aaron's sons, the priests, shall arrange the pieces, including the head and the fat, on the wood that is burning on the altar. You are to wash the internal organs and the legs with water, and the priest is to burn all of it on the altar. It is a burnt offering, a food offering, an aroma pleasing to the Lord. The entire offering is burned up, is sacrificed, and it all goes to the Lord. A food offering, a pleasing aroma. Metaphors, because obviously God doesn't need to eat this stuff, and he's spirit, he doesn't have a nose. How does that work? What's going on in this passage? What's going on in Leviticus 1? And I would argue this. Most biblical scholars would say that what's going on in Leviticus 1 is that this is the effort of that person to be accepted by God. That they're trying to get God's attention. Not accepted because they've sinned or done anything wrong. Just, hey God, I want to spend time with you. And the purpose of this whole chapter and much of the Old Testament is to tell the Israelites to enter into God's presence is dangerous. In fact, there's a passage in Exodus chapter 30. <coughs> it uses the same word about uh, atonement. You don't see it in there, but... It's the word ransom. When you take a census of the Israelites to count them, each one must pay the Lord a ransom for his life at the time he is counted. Then no plague will come on them when you number them. Now, there is no mention about sin. It's not sin to uh, count each other. It's not sin to present yourselves before the Lord. This is just God saying, it's scary to be in my presence and so you need to make a ransom for yourselves. And this particular ransom is a shekel. And the people had to contribute to a, a building project that was undergoing in Israel. And by the way, we'd never imagine doing that. But that's how God got his point across. And the people, they, 
gave a shekel as a ransom, as a kafar for their life. It's the same word. Now, next slide is kind of interesting. It's a Hebrew word stuff. Atonement is this word, kafar. In the Hebrew Bible, they don't use vowels because they wanted to really confuse non-Hebrew readers. So in the Hebrew text, it's just K-P-R. That's the alliteration of those letters from Hebrew. But there's six different words that are spelled this way in Hebrew. Just like trunk. Spelled the exact same way with different meanings. And if you look this up in, the, in a, a really good Hebrew dictionary, it'll tell you that in Exodus chapter 30 and in Leviticus chapter 1, this is kefer number 4. Now, many of you are going, my goodness, church, why bother? Why are we here right now? And what this is saying is that this way you, you define this word, the next slide has possible definitions for kefer number 4. Bribe, ransom or payment, or compensation. You see, the picture that is being created in Leviticus chapter 1, and to, to translate this atonement does you no good to translate the word atonement there because that's not what is going on. What's going on is the person is seeking to bribe God, to pay attention to them. The person is seeking to, to give a gift to God, like I am wanting to spend time with you. And here's my gift so that you will bring about your attention on me. So you'll pay attention to me. And the whole point of all this is, is did you see in Exodus 30, if you don't do this right, a plague will break out amongst everybody? The whole point of this stuff is to scare people and help them understand you're not God. When you enter into his presence, you don't just, hey, what's up, God, homie? No, you better bring a kafir that is acceptable, perfect, and do it the right way. Have the priest handle it correctly. Slaughter it at the right place. Bring it all in and place it on the altar and burn it up. What's the point of all that? Do you think the Israelites ever went, tabernacle, why bother? Temple, why bother? All these sacrifices, Leviticus, why bother? You know they did. You know tons of them did. The vast majority of Israel turned their back on God's instructions and quit doing it. They went and worshiped other gods because they were more fun. It was more exciting. There was cooler, hipper churches in town. In the New Testament, we see them. They are called the sinners, the tax collectors, and the prostitutes. These are the on-purpose people that don't bother to go to the temple and do this stuff. And you can see why they'd quit, right? Would you want to do this every time you wanted to interact with God? Number one, it's kind of expensive. How much is a young bull going for nowadays? Without defect? I bring a pretty good price. 
or uh, there's other options as you read through the, the passage if you're not as wealthy as that. And by the way, God would know how wealthy you are, so you can't really kind of, eh, I'm feeling kind of poor, I'll bring a pigeon. <laughs> Remember, a plague could break out. God might kill you or the people around you if he doesn't accept this burnt offering. It's dangerous to enter into his presence. You could bring a goat. You could bring a sheep. Have to be males without blemish. You could bring a pigeon or a dove. That's what Jesus' parents brought because they were poor. When they said, hey, God, we want some attention of yours. We haven't done anything wrong. We just want to be in your presence. You ever wonder, why did God set it up like this? Why did he make it so difficult to just be in his presence? Because he's wanting to communicate, you're not me. You're on sacred, holy ground, and you don't just come wandering in. This past week, our nation remembered 9-11 happened 14 years ago. And I've never been to Ground Zero, and I've never been to the memorial. But my guess is when you're there, my guess is when you're there, it's like the Vietnam Memorial that I've been to in Washington, D.C. And you're just not carrying on with a conversation. So, how are you? Have you been down to the New Delhi on the corner? It's just fantastic. Hey, how's that button of yours going? Is that okay? Things working out for you? When you're on holy, sacred ground, there's a reference. There's something that says this is not ordinary. Something happened here. Something important happened here. Now, I remember in church, there were people that got after me for running in church when I was a kid. And what they were trying to do is they were picking up this language from the Old Testament. This is no ordinary place. Kids just can't run around in here. This is special. This is, as the folks would say back then, God's house. And it was kind of interesting what they'd say. It's not really very good theology because the New Testament tells us something vastly different, that God does not live in a house any longer. He lives in his people So I could have retorted back to them if I was a smart aleck, which I am now. So I could have done this when I was younger. I would have said, well, God lives in me. I am running with God in me. So there. I'm his house and his house is mobile. And if I was really smart and had paid attention to uh, chariots of fire, I could say, I feel God's pleasure when I run. Well, you shouldn't run. It's God's house. What they were trying to tell me is there's something special about this place. But nowadays in churches, we've kind of gotten away from this reverence. We've gotten away from this, oh, we can't come to church without wearing our best. And we got to just all freak out. We play music. We, we, we play with instruments. Holy cow, the pastor plays the drums now. We wear jeans. We don't get our Sunday best on. We don't feel the need. 
Have we lost it? Do we just walk in and go, well, hey, God, Jesus is my homeboy. What's happened? What happened is the game changed. The means by which you enter into God's presence and fellowship with him changed. Now, who brought about that change? You? The church? Well, we're in church, so the answer must be Jesus, right? Whenever I was in doubt in Sunday school, Steve, what's the answer? Jesus? That was just threw that out. You were right about nine out of ten times. Jesus changed things. In fact, you can go to the book of Hebrews, and you read in Hebrews, and you come across uh, this have a great week thing. (laughs) Wrap it up, please. There's a Bronco game. (laughs) All righty. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16, it says, Let us then approach God's throne of grace with fear and trembling and a sacrifice and hope that I don't do it wrong so he doesn't kill me and a plague breaks out amongst everybody. No, it doesn't say that, does it? It just has one word. It says confidence. That's what this communicates. Confidence. Maybe it, I mean, to me, it communicates that. The way we do church communicates a certain amount of confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. We come into God's presence for the same reasons, but now instead of having to do the bull, do the sheep, do the goat, do the pigeon, do the dove, and then do it all right and do it properly and have one of Aaron's sons, whoever that guy is, take care of all that for us and splash blood and burn flesh. See, now we go, that's all been done for us. Jesus Christ hung on a cross. And Jesus Christ, it says, as he died on the cross, the curtain that separated the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple, the place, the special place, the place that God was in, that curtain tore from the top to the bottom. It was communicating that now things have changed. Why? Because God has changed them. Why? Because there is now a perfect sacrifice. A perfect offering, a perfect bribe, a perfect ransom was paid for you and for me. And we can walk in with confidence. Now, how does this help us understand what the church is doing and what it's supposed to be? You see, I've always thought of church as a place that we go to encounter God. It's a place that we go to encounter God together. You see, my theology and my Bible tells me that God's everywhere. So there's no special, you know, amount of God here. The only way that there's a special amount of God here is if we're all here. Because God lives in us. But this is not sacred ground. You could plow this down and put up homes here. And nobody's going to go, oh my gosh, what happened to God's spot? Well, God's spot left the building and he leaves the building every Sunday at about 11 o'clock. 
heads out to the buffet. That's the subway. Every day, every Sunday. That's God leaving the building. If you're a follower of Jesus, God's in you and he's leaving the building with you. He's in you. He's present. And Jesus made this possible. You see, the purpose of the church at its core, and these are great quotes from Philip Yancey. I want you to just think of these as you come to church. What matters most takes place within the hearts of the congregation. That'd be all of us, because I'm part of that. What matters most is what happens in the hearts of the congregation, not among the actors on stage. You see, an American view of church would go, the most important thing is all these folks up here and the kind of music they play and how funny the preacher is and what he says and what they wear and what they look like. And we should leave a worship service asking ourselves not, what did I get out of it? Anybody ever guilty of that? But rather... Was God pleased with what happened? Now, what I, what I like about that is it kind of taps back into that Leviticus idea. Not that we have to be afraid and, oh my gosh, if we did it wrong, there's going to be a plague that breaks out and half of Ray will fall into a hole. And, it, ah. and many of us still think of God that way, sadly. Many of us think, well, I got to get my act together and I can't possibly at church because I don't have my act together and it's this crazy cycle that we're in and we think I have to make God happy and pleasing and I can't be there or if I am there and, not, and then bad things happen, it must be because and God doesn't function that way at all. But I like that the concern of our worship should be the audience of one. When I drum, I drum for God's pleasure. I don't know if he likes it or not, but I do drum for his pleasure. When I lead in music, it's not for your benefit. I mean, that's a side benefit. Do you understand that? Your singing is not so Steve feels like, Come on, people, get with it. This is painful. You're singing to God. And he's the only one that should matter. That's why sometimes people feel like, I'm going to close my eyes. Because I don't want to be conscious of these folks around me. I don't want to be hindered in my worship by the things they might be thinking. In fact, they should not be thinking, oh, good Lord, did you see that? They should be thinking about the audience of one. All of us, when we worship, that's what we should be about. Did God have a good time? Was God pleased with what occurred? Here's the crazy thing. There are a lot of churches who say a lot of God talk and sing traditional hymns or contemporary music or whatever that is. And there are a lot of times that God leaves disappointed. Why? Because it's what's in here that matters. It's what's in your hearts that matters when we worship. I like this quote from Philip Yancey as well. Church exists primarily not 
to provide entertainment or, or to encourage vulnerability or to build self-esteem. Five ways to have self-esteem out of the book of John. Or to facilitate friendships, but to worship God. That's why the church exists. If it fails in that, it fails. If the church fails in worshiping God, it fails. This is why we have to be so careful with all the extra fluff and the bells and the smells that we add on to church. Because we can get so busy thinking about this or thinking about that or was my kid happy or was I happy or do they have this for me or do they have that for me. If we get all caught up in all that stuff, we can miss the point of church. And the point of church is this, to connect us with God through worship. That's the point. That's why we pick the songs we pick. And if we're doing a poor job of picking songs that help you connect to God, would you please help us? Would you let us know that? We're not trying to torture anyone. We're not trying to just do things that we enjoy. We understand our role is to connect you to God. Now, by the way, in connecting with God, it's not just a selfish act. Did I feel connected with God? Remember Leviticus 1. That's why that's such an important passage because nobody walked in there going, you know, I don't really like this whole slaughtering the bull thing. I think I'm going to do it my way. I think I'm going to do it different. You know what happened to people who didn't go through the motions back then? Or excuse me, that's a bad way of putting it. Because later the prophets got after them for going through the motions. You see, it was still about their heart. And what happened was when they failed to do that and they failed to align their heart with this believing loyalty to Yahweh, to God, they were cut off from the people. Eventually all of Israel paid the price for not following him. And for us, the church, the beauty of God is that we experience grace over and over and over and over and over again. We experience God's grace here. And that is a part of worship. One quote I read this past week was this, worship begins in silence. I think that's why I like astronomy so much. Because when I go out and I look at the night sky and I start to have that feeling of I'm shrinking, I'm tiny, I'm insignificant, I'm nothing. And then I just stand there in silence and wonder and in awe. Maybe a hymn comes to mind, a passage of scripture. But in those moments, I experience worship. Crazy thing is, my wife or my kids can ruin that moment for me. A passing semi or a train, a barking dog can ruin that moment for me. So maybe I should just stay out in the field by myself. 
But then you get irritating commands from God. Don't give up the habit of meeting with each other like some are in the habit of doing. You see, if I stand out in that cold field long enough by myself, I will be in awe, but I will freeze to death. But when I come together with you, when I come together in this place, or whatever place we meet in, and I come with you, and my coal that is just barely keeping on fire, when I get with other coals, it burns hotter. And my worship burns hotter. And my experience of God grows because of those with me. That'll be part of what we talk about in the coming weeks. Church, why bother? Because worship connects you to God. Because worship is what pleases God. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that today you would be pleased with what's transpired thus far. And you would be happy with what goes on in this church always. And thank you that we didn't all have to line up with a bull or a goat or a sheep or a dove or a pigeon. And thank you I didn't have to splash blood everywhere. And thank you that we could walk in with confidence, that we can be ourselves, that we have assurance that because of Jesus and your grace, you meet with us, that you are here, that you indwell in, inside of us. Thank you that through these times we can be connected to you and each other. Holy Spirit, speak into us what church is here for. Now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and be gracious to you. May what you do please God. Amen.